a legal and practical matter, you have people in compliance with state law but violating federal law. And, you know, the administration's hands are somewhat tied. They can't just wave a wand and change federal law, but they do control federal enforcement priorities. And so they've said, as long as these businesses, and it applies to medical marijuana and recreational businesses, as long as they're not throwing marijuana on federal lands or shipping it out of state or having, you know, guns or, or Mexican drug cartel presences in their business. So that's sort of where we're at now. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from sunny Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Bob? And this is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and another one called Media Law. Well, before we introduce today's topic, Bob, we want to thank our sponsor, Clio. It's an online practice management software program for lawyers at www.goclio.com. Well, today we're going to be talking about legalization of marijuana at the state level and what the legal consequences of that may be vis-a-vis uh, -vis federal law. The Colorado and Washington uh, have legalized marijuana for adult use. Uh, a number of other states, I think we're up to about 20 states, have legalized marijuana for medical purposes. What does this all mean, given that marijuana is still banned at the federal level? And many people don't realize that. Well, Bob, to help shed light on that issue, we're going to welcome Brian Vicente. He's been the executive director for Sensible Colorado since 2005, Sensible Advocates for the Complete Legalization of Marijuana. Brian is also a criminal defense attorney and founding partner of Vincente Cedarberg. He also chairs the Denver Mayor's Marijuana Policy Review Panel and coordinates the Colorado Bar Association's Drug Policy Project. Welcome, Brian Vicente. Thanks. Great to be here. And in addition, we're going to be joined today by Dan Riffle. Dan is the Director of Federal Policies for the Marijuana Policy Project. Uh, in Washington, D.C., which is also an advocacy group promoting the full legalization of marijuana. Dan is a, a former assistant prosecutor in Vinton County, Ohio, who has now turned uh, lobbyist on Capitol Hill. In 2013, he helped shepherd uh, medical marijuana legislation through the Illinois legislature, making it the second largest medical marijuana state. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, uh, Dan Riffle. Thanks for having me on. And Bob, also to kind of take off on some of the recent changes in federal marijuana policy that includes instructing the banks to allow them to work directly with marijuana dispensaries and potentially not be prosecuted, we've got Senior Assistant City Attorney for the City of Boulder, Colorado, Kathy Haddock. She's primarily responsible for advising finance records, elections, airports, special districts, and special projects, which happens to include medical and recreational marijuana. And in addition, and more specifically, she's been responsible for drafting the laws that license and govern medical marijuana businesses in Boulder, Colorado. Kathy Haddock, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, Brian Vicente, let's start with you. Uh, we've got uh, Colorado uh, having legalized marijuana. We have the, the federal government telling us uh, that they're going to perhaps hold off a, a little bit on, on enforcement of federal drug laws in the states that are recognizing marijuana. And yet there's news uh, 
just recently of a major federal drug raid in Denver, Colorado at a, at a marijuana dispensary. So what's going on here? What's the situation? Are states safe from federal government enforcement of uh, drug laws here? Sure. So, I mean, we live in a, a really interesting time, and there's incredible momentum at the state level to change marijuana and medical marijuana laws. And, and we think that you know, a number of, of states will be really joining Colorado and Washington in, in having legalized marijuana or, you know, at a minimum, medical marijuana uh, within the upcoming year. So there's a lot of movement there. At the same time, uh, there's a strange duality going on where, you know, marijuana, well, well legal in, in 20-some medical states and fully legal in Colorado and Washington, is 100% illegal under federal law. So, um, you know, we live in a sort of a, a strange world, but we've had some very interesting guidance from the federal government on this topic. And they've said several times in sort of official policy memos that really as long as you follow state law to a T, you will not be uh, subject to federal prosecution for doing so. So for all these licensed businesses in Colorado that are selling marijuana or medical marijuana, they really, at least the federal government has said that you're not in danger of really a federal prosecution if you're following the state law to a T and if you're not engaging in any you know, shipping out of state or gun running or, or things like that. And really that we found that to be true. Now we, we have had some raids in Colorado, uh, state licensed businesses, and you know, from the federal government's statements, that these seem to be, you know, according to them, bad apples and folks that are perhaps acting outside of state law, and that's why they were a focus. Unlike the you know 500 odd other businesses that really seem to be following state law uh, diligently. Well, Kathy, how does that comply with federal supremacy laws? Obviously, Colorado's made some significant changes uh, to medical marijuana law and regular recreational marijuana law. How do you marry those two together, even with the Obama administration memo? In several years, are we going to be looking at a different policy from a different president? Well, that very well could be true. And frankly, we have not had the same experience of them following the memos. For instance, well, there's a lot of lack of certainty or uncertainty for our businesses because several of them are licensed under both state and local law. But in the past two years, the feds have sent cease and desist letters to those businesses that are in a thousand feet of a school or universities. The city's law only requires them to be 500 feet away from schools and did not include universities as schools. So we have examples of businesses that are following our laws to a T but are still getting cease and desist letters from the federal government, even with those memos that are out there. So that's a problem already let alone if we get a president who has the administration send memos going another direction. Dan Riffle, you're there in Washington, D.C. Maybe you could set the stage for our listeners who may not be fully familiar with this, but as I understand it, in 2009, the Department of Justice put out a memo basically saying that uh, they were not going to go after state-licensed marijuana distributors. And, and I think a couple of times since then, the uh, DOJ has uh, elaborated on, on that policy. What exactly is the DOJ saying about how it will deal with state-licensed distributors? Yeah, so from a federal supremacy perspective, the uh at the risk of revisiting constitutional law for those who haven't been <laughs> recent graduates from law school, the general consensus seems to be that there's nothing the feds can do about individuals who are, you know, in possession or using marijuana. The anti-commandeering clause was the, the legal standard there, which says that the feds can't force state law enforcement officials to enforce federal law or force the states to have, you know, certain laws on the books. 
So there's no question that the states can repeal laws against possession. There is some concern that the feds could sue to block the regulatory and taxation scheme. But of course, if they did that and sued successfully, the end result would be this sort of chaotic, anarchic system where marijuana is legal to possess and use, but there are no rules around who can sell marijuana or how the state can regulate it. So, you know, from a legal and practical matter, it makes sense for the feds to not challenge these state laws. But of course, that you know, creates some challenges because you have, you know, the situation that Brian outlined where you have people in compliance with state law but violating federal law. And, you know, the administration's hands are somewhat tied. They can't just wave a wand and change federal law, but they do control federal enforcement priorities. And so they've said in the 2009 Ogden memo that they're not going to go after individual patients and their caregivers who are providing medical marijuana. And then we had some folks who you know, sort of used the caregiver language in that memo as a loophole to open large marijuana distribution stores. There was some backlash from U.S. attorneys. We then saw another memo in 2010 that said, whoa, 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 we didn't mean to authorize large-scale businesses. And so you know, that's where we saw some of the crackdown that your other guest, Kathy, mentioned. And then the most recent guidance we received in uh, 2013 this year in August was in response to the Colorado and Washington initiatives to tax and regulate marijuana. And that's where the federal government laid out these these eight enforcement priorities that largely line up with state law and say, you know, we're not going to take action as long as these businesses, and it applies to medical marijuana and recreational businesses, as long as they're not implicating these concerns of, you know, growing marijuana on federal lands or shipping it out of state or having, you know, guns or, or Mexican drug cartel presences in their business. So that's sort of where we're at now is two steps forward and one step back and now two steps forward again. Brian, do we have anything to guide us from presidential history? I mean, is there any situation that we faced with federal laws being one thing and state laws being a mishmash of anything else? Is prohibition similar to this? Or what examples can we look at to kind of decide how this is going to shake out? I mean, just what a mess. <laughs> There's not a whole lot of direct precedent, which sort of makes this an interesting area to work in. I mean, you know, we often look back at, at alcohol prohibition, which of course was, you know, illegal at the federal level. And then as, as that changed, you know, they kind of each state decided what their appropriate alcohol policies would be over time. And of course, that's still developing. But I mean, that's really how we see this moving forward. I mean, we think that, you know, the, the genie is out of the bottle and, you know, certain states have made these you know, progressive steps forward, Colorado, Washington, some other states are considering it very seriously in the upcoming years. And I think there'll, there'll be sort of a uh, ripple effect from that where other states will realize, well, you know, these Colorado is making a tremendous amount of money from tax revenue. It's looking like it might be $100 million in the first year. You know, why are we spending our tax dollars locking people up for marijuana? And I think then over time, you know, more and more states will get on board. There'll be sort of a critical mass. And then my guess is within eight or so years, we'll see uh, a federal shift and um, which will sort of allow for this duality to disappear and the feds will say, listen, states can really officially do as they want. Kathy, you represent the city of Boulder. What kinds of obligations do these federal memoranda put on the state and local government in Colorado to uh, ensure that these laws are being properly uh, administered and applied by the businesses that are getting licensed? What about the city of Boulder in particular? I mean, how is it is it concerned with the federal oversight here, and, and how is it responding to that? 
Well, there's a couple way to answer that question. For the conflicts, the city employees that are working on the enforcement and the city council that's adopting the laws are concerned, in fact, so concerned that had the city council formally adopt a provision that they would defend any employee that was charged with federal crimes for enforcing the city's marijuana laws, so long as we were in compliance with the city's laws. So we have that level to deal with as well as trying to figure out what we can do to make up for the gaps. The banking issue is a huge one for us because forcing these businesses into cash businesses creates all sorts of problems for us in trying to collect taxes that is paid in cash, and we really don't have the mechanism to do that. Police do spot inspections like they do for liquor stores, but then coming away with their uniforms smelling like marijuana, and fire departments are having the same type of problem. So going to the next call smelling like marijuana is not helpful. So those are not all federal issues, but they are all the practical issues that we are having to deal with. If I could speak to that first issue, this is Brian. You know, we, we often hear from city officials that they're concerned about the federal government somehow deciding to use their enforcement priorities to come after city officials who are licensing these businesses. And it's definitely worth noting that has never happened in history. There isn't one single example of a medical marijuana state or community. And we have, I mean, there's 20 some states that are doing this of the federal government saying, you know, we're going to come after the person that's sent giving out this license. But that, that, uh, Boulder's been used to being first in a lot of things. <laughs> well, and, and Holder's memo seems to place some responsibility on the government. So I, I mean, obviously it would, but I mean, it specifically talks about the government's obligation to sort of affirmatively address measures to prevent diversion of marijuana outside of the regulated system, uh, prohibit access of marijuana to minors, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's placing an obligation on the government to police these laws, and there must be at least an implicit threat of consequences in there if they're putting that obligation. I think you touched on the really key language of the memo that just came out in August of this year, which is the that state regulation can affirmatively address these guidelines. You know, we've always heard from the federal government that We have to keep marijuana illegal so that we can reduce the influence of people who sell drugs and control marijuana as part of the Controlled Substances Act. The irony of that is that by making it illegal, we have absolutely no control over marijuana. Only by, you know, regulating it can we control who sells it, when they sell it, to whom they sell it. And by, of course, making marijuana illegal, we actually enrich Mexican drug cartels because, you know, we take the the industry out of the hands of tax-paying, law-abiding businesses and put it in the hands of criminals. And so... You know, what we've been saying for a long time is that the best way to reduce the influence of cartels and control marijuana is to regulate it. And the coal memo that we that came out in 2013 of this year was really the first time that we've heard the federal government agree with that sentiment and say that, you know, their enforcement priorities largely overlap with state goals of regulating marijuana. And by allowing states to regulate marijuana, we can affirmatively address these federal priorities of reducing the influence of cartels and reducing the crime around marijuana and controlling when and where marijuana is sold and to whom. All right. Well, we need to take a short break. So Brian, Dan, and Kathy, please stay with us. We will be back in just a few moments after these words from our sponsors. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes 
just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a, a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in, less than, in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you, and if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with us today is Brian Vicente from Sensible Colorado, Dan Riffle from Marijuana Policy Project, and Kathy Haddock, the Senior Assistant City Attorney for the City of Boulder, Colorado. Dan, before the break, we started talking about the banks and the new federal memo from Eric Holder about the banks not being prosecuted. Let's think for a moment about attorneys. What's the consequence to attorneys who potentially in Colorado and or other states like California, we have medical marijuana. If an attorney assists a dispensary in getting set up, is the attorney violating federal law? Well, from the federal government's perspective, you would much rather have these businesses that are setting up you know, their operations do so legally and in compliance with state law and sort of let state regulations control you know, how these businesses are set up. You'd much prefer that to having people you know, operating in the dark. You know, federal law is what it is, and so you know, whether attorneys are violating their ethical obligations to not you know, assist in violations of federal law is, is sort of up to the bar associations in terms of how they uh, interpret that, but it's certainly, from a public policy perspective, much better to allow these businesses to have access to you know, legal advice. And, and Brian, as a, as a member of the state bar in Colorado, can sort of speak to how the bar there is handling things. Sure. And this is a very interesting and timely topic because, you know, we found we've been involved in changing a lot of these marijuana laws. And, and really what happens from there is when you establish a regulated structure for marijuana sales, it impacts many different areas of law, right? Employment law, uh, real estate law, regulatory law, criminal defense, all sorts of things. So we get calls, you know, every day from lawyers that are thinking about whether they should help in this area or not. I mean, our office, you know, there's 17 of us between two states, and all we do is work with marijuana law. So we sort of made that decision to do this. But Dan was right. I mean, you have to look at the state ethics rules in the place you're practicing. And we've seen some very restrictive rulings come out of, I believe it was Maine, and we've seen some more permissive rulings come out of Arizona. Colorado, where I currently practice, they've had sort of advisory opinions from their from the Ethics Commission or the Ethics Committee of, of our State Bar Association that has said, you know, we think it's okay for lawyers to sort of generally talk about what are our medical marijuana laws and explain them to clients, but, you know, what we think may be going too far is actually assisting clients with setting up these businesses, assisting clients with uh, understanding or perhaps even writing leases for these businesses or contracts for the sale of marijuana to, to wholesalers or what, what have you. And they've sort of indicated that that may be going too far. At the same time, you know, we've been 
in active dialogue with our bar association here, and they, they've said, listen, we've never prosecuted anyone for this, for, for an attorney for helping start a medical marijuana business or a marijuana business. It's not a priority for us, and we are, in fact, working to change the rules themselves in our state to allow attorneys to act in this area. So it's really something that, that attorneys need to take a hard look and then figure out what is their, their risk threshold, and we've made a decision that we feel very comfortable helping these, these state legal businesses get running, and, and some other lawyers aren't quite there yet. There is a, uh, just to supplement what you just said, I understand there is a specific uh, rule change pending in Colorado that would specifically address counseling clients concerning marijuana and would say that a lawyer is not violating any ethical rules for counseling a client to engage in that business. Interesting development. Absolutely. Well, Kathy, as people in Colorado get used to this new change, what's the sense of things on the street? You have a pretty unique experience in the sense of dealing directly with citizens that are and business people that are dealing with it. What is it something that's confusing to people? Are they understanding it? Or do you find yourself having to explain it every time you deal with it? Boy, that's a difficult question. There's so many uh, various people that we deal with. You're right, we have the citizens, we have people that are trying to set up businesses, we have people that want us to restrict having sign twirlers on the street. So I think that there's confusion. In general, what we have done from the regulatory side is that the city adopted pretty strict requirements for the businesses that the vote here passed substantially in 2012. So the council it was okay with the businesses, but wanting them to be real legitimate businesses that were operating on the up and up. When we first started enforcing, there were a lot of businesses and people, and in fact, about half the applications that we received that didn't meet our requirements. We have been enforcing fairly strictly, and as a result, have taken away several licenses, denied several licenses. I've defended about 10 cases where people challenged those decisions. And now we have businesses that are really trying to comply with the law, as difficult as that is to figure out what's going to be the next twist or turn, and have businesses that we really have very few complaints about. I want to ask Brian, Craig raised this issue earlier, you know, what happens if we get a new president, we get a new attorney general, takes a new attitude toward this from a, a federal level. What about the businesses that are operating in Colorado now? Do they face the threat of federal penalties? Is that a realistic possibility that hangs over these businesses? Yeah, I mean, these businesses currently you know, face the threat of federal prosecution. What they're doing is federally illegal. But again, we've, we've seen policy statements from the federal government where they've said, you know, you can keep operating. We don't really care about you as long as you're following strict rules and so forth. You know, if there is a major, if there's a change in, in federal policy or the uh, new president comes on board, my guess is by the end of 2016, I think groups like the Marijuana Policy Project will actually have been effective in legalizing marijuana in probably five more states by that time. And I think there's just a general movement going on here where this is not something that the federal government's going to be able to roll back because there's so much support for it nationwide. If that were to occur, if there were to be a federal shift and they said, you know, uh, we're not going to worry about white-collar crime or whatever, we're going to focus on shutting down marijuana stores, 
I think the most likely way that would happen is kind of what we've seen here in Colorado, where the, the limited federal enforcement there's been against folks that are generally following all state rules is a letter from the federal government that says, you know, you have 45 days to, to shut down your operation. I, I think it's unlikely the federal government would paratroop into Colorado and the other states with legal marijuana or medical marijuana and begin arresting people. I think it'd be more of a, a reasonable wind down. We should note for our listeners that we did, in fact, invite the Justice Department to participate in this show. We reached out several times to uh, representatives of the Justice Department and were unable to uh, secure somebody to participate in the show. So I just want to make note of that. Right. We also tried Bob here in California to get somebody from the uh, Justice Department and we were unsuccessful in doing so. But we've just about reached the end of our program where it's time to wrap up with your final thoughts and your contact information. And one of the things, this is something that we typically don't do, but I'm going to kind of deputize all three of you with a magic wand and ask you to just, as part of your closing, tell us what you wish the federal government would be doing right now as a consequence of the changes that are occurring in these laws around the various states. So, Kathy, let's start with you. Your final closing thoughts and your contact information, please. I would like the federal government to allow normal banking relationships for these businesses. Forcing the businesses to operate in cash creates a whole bunch of problems for us, especially trying to do sales tax auditing where you have banking records usually that you can compare with invoices and do a fairly easy audit. Not being able to audit businesses seems to me to be going the opposite direction of trying to have legitimate businesses and not having these businesses be fronts. Also, for the federal government to waive the federal preemption for marijuana businesses, government employees, banks, and other businesses that are working with marijuana businesses in compliance with state law and let the state law control rather than us having to worry about an argument that the federal law controls. Because you know, otherwise it's just putting us in a bind we can't get out of. And the reasonable thing seems to do is make it clear for everybody what the rules are. Great. And your contact information, if our listeners like to reach out to you? I am at the city of Boulder. Our emails are our last name and first initial. So my email is H-A-D-D-O-C-K-K at bouldercolorado.gov with all those spelled out and no spaces. Great. Thank you. Dan, we'll throw it over to you. Sure. You know, I think we're at a point where, you know, we've got two states that have moved forward with taxing and regulating marijuana. As Brian said, we're expecting anywhere from five to ten more states to do so in the next four years. So I think it's important to let these states, Colorado and Washington, be what Justice Brandeis called laboratories of democracy. This is the first time that we've ever experimented with this policy, so there's a lot to learn. And it's important for the federal government to let those states move forward. So what I would like to see is for Congress to pass legislation that you know doesn't legalize marijuana at the federal level or force any particular marijuana policy on the states, but just leaves marijuana policy up to the states and lets them sort of chart their own course. And there's actually a bill, H.R. 1523, that conservative Republican from Orange County, Dana Rohrbacher, has introduced that has a number of Republican co-sponsors on there. You know, it's the states' rights approach. We've heard even Rick Perry and Ken Cuccinelli's of the world endorse that approach. So I think that's the way to go, and that's what I'd like to see the federal government do. And I encourage your listeners to go to MPP.org and take action on that. Contact their members of Congress. And if they'd like to get in touch with me, my email address is driffle at MPP.org. And you can also find me on Twitter at Dan Riffle. And that's R-I-F-F-L-E, right? You got it. Right, Brian. Well, I think my colleagues on the phone really summed up a lot of the important actions we need at the federal government. I mean, I believe that we need congressional action to allow 
local control, state control over this issue, and, and ultimately probably a rescheduling of marijuana from Schedule 1, where it's with the most dangerous substances you know, known to man, to uh, further down the scheduling system or perhaps even out of the schedule. The only other piece I would add is that we do need to look how these medical marijuana and marijuana businesses are treated under our IRS tax code. There's a provision of that code 280E, which basically makes it very difficult for these businesses to operate because it does not allow them to make many traditional tax deductions, and that just doesn't make sense. Uh, these are state legal businesses. They should be able to deduct things like advertising, staff, payroll, the way that other businesses are. So um, to learn more about my law firm, our actions, please check out themarijuanalawfirm.com, and all our contact information is on there. That's themarijuanalawfirm.com. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. So, Bob, it looks like uh, it's our turn to talk where we have 30 seconds to share closing thoughts before we get cut off by the buzzer. So you go first. Well, it probably won't surprise you to know that I'm happy to see liberalization of marijuana laws across the country uh, here in Massachusetts, where I am. We're, we're in the middle of uh, implementing our medical marijuana dispensaries, just getting them set up and licensed, and they'll be starting a little bit later this year. It sounds to me, uh, from listening to this discussion, that the federal government's hands-off approach uh, perhaps isn't enough. Perhaps that the government needs to be a little bit more proactive, as much as I hate that word, in adopting some policies to address this. And there's my buzzer, so I will stop. Go ahead, Craig. What do you think? Well, I'm kind of of the same mind. Surprisingly enough, being here from the bastion of Republican conservatism in Orange County, I see the issue as one of federal statutory regulation. And I think that the federal government just needs to step up to the plate, pass a law that legalizes marijuana across the country. I mean, we're behind the times on this, I believe. And to me, this is almost along the same lines as the struggle that we're going through with trying to figure out what's happening with gay rights and we're all confused about that, and we seem to be just as confused about this. Sounds good. Well, uh, I'd just like to thank Brian Vicente, Dan Riffle, and Kathy Haddock for being with us and sharing their insights on this issue. Thanks to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, guys. We really appreciate it. Bob, that brings us to the end of our show. It does. This is Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.